Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am here in my grandmother's wig and long dress with my butcher knife, and Jason is over here in his skin suit with everything nicely tucked. (laughs) (laughs) We are sitting down to a beautiful dinner of liver, farva beans, and a nice Chianti. I can't wait to dive into this. We are back with the 30-something movie podcast, guys. Again, we're jumping back into our conversation on the movies M, Psycho, and Silence of the Lambs. Okay, so what do, what do you guys think is the best scene in the movie? you got to pick one scene as the best scene. What are you gonna, which one are you going to pick? I'm going to go and Peter Laurie. Oh, if something else, go first. Go ahead. No, you already started. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Laurie breaks down. He gets his lines at the end, and there's the big kind of if you want to call it a monologue. And I think the anguish and the torture of you presenting this problem of this is me, I have this issue. What are you going to do with it? What do you know? Like I can't help it. And I think it's a pretty passionate throws people into a, you know, how do you deal with this problem now? Cause you want to hate them and we do, but at the same time, he's explaining that this is not my choice. This is something that I, I am sick. I am ill. And what do we do with the sick and ill in our society, especially when they're harming our children? It, it gives you that ethical dilemma to a certain degree where you don't feel necessarily, I wouldn't say sympathy. Well, would it be sympathy? Maybe it would be sympathy or empathy, maybe a little bit. But but I think that that scene at there, where because now it just you 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 know all along it's him. So there's no hiding of who done it. But now you get to hear him talk really for the first time, and what he says isn't like it's almost disarming to a certain degree for people with this kind of mock trial going on and what appears to be like a basement somewhere. So I think all that. three of these movies do a great job of adding a bit of sympathy for the bad guy. Right? We feel bad that the kangaroo court's about to pull this guy apart, you know, and. Norman Bates, we feel a little bit bad. This guy's got major issues. You know, he's got trouble. And then even Buffalo Bill, I'm like, this guy's messed up. He, yeah. I mean, we'll get to the, we'll get to that in a minute. But I, and that's not the best scene, but the scene where he's talking to her in the pit and he keeps trying to say, you know, it will put the lotion on. It will put the lotion on. Ted Levine does a fantastic job of showing you that he's having difficulty controlling the sadness he has. For the creature that he's Hurting. trying to kill, yeah. you know, that he's trying to keep separate. He, you can see him struggling, and then you know, way he overcomes that is to start screaming at her in a different. Well, way. it's the fighting the urges too. They're they're battling their demons, and you get to experience it through those exchanges. And in this one with M, it's it's again the whistling that never seems perfect. You know, it's not like he's whistling like the best whistle in the world. And then there's the one scene where he's whistling, and it's like almost an angry, frustrated like. I can't control this. And he's whistling and like, you can feel the struggle of him trying to keep it at bay and keep those bad thoughts at bay. And, and he, and he's struggling and the whistling become, you know, it's not like an enjoyable sinister whistle, you know, which, which it maybe sort of feels like in the beginning, but then you start to see, see that it's just, it's almost torture for him. What he says is that he is tormented by the souls night and day, the tormented mm-hmm. by his victims, tormented by the thoughts of their mothers, tormented always and forever except when he's doing it the best scene for me i don't know if i'd call this the best scene but maybe it's the plot device whatever i really like how you got the cops who are like listen we got to find this guy right now and then you got the underworld who's like we got to find this guy right now these cops are all over the place because of this guy and we got to get rid of him right yeah it was it was and they kept cutting back and forth between the meeting with the cops and the and the gangsters, kind of made me think a little of the uh, of uh, Dark Knight, where it's like the bad guys are having that meeting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> problem. Yeah. 
You know, there's yeah, this guy. Exactly, here yeah. It was much more enlightened than I thought it was going to be for a 1931 movie. I just was like, wow, they're really talking about the struggle of the psychology of the murderer, the child murderer here. Are we really exploring that? And then to leave it with the question unanswered of what do you do? Fritz Lang wants to say that the, you know, that the point is to take better care of your kids. But I think the question is who's going to cast the first stone. I think that's what the question is, right? Nice. Do you put the mad dog down like the lady in the kangaroo court says you should do, or do you commit them to an asylum and try to care for them or something? I don't know. It's tough. I watched it with my 18 year old too. And she was like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I was like, wow, this movie, is 90 years old. Well, I can't say like what you just said, like codifies it so well, like what I have, what really hooked me into this movie. And I know we were talking about like a comparison to Jaws. This movie almost did for me what Jaws does where, yeah, it's about the shark and it's about an adventure on the ocean, but that's great. But it's also an exploration of humanity. And not only with you know, in Jaws, you have those three lead characters, you know, like each hitting the problem from a different aspect. But then it's also all about the the townspeople and or the island people and how are they responding and the mayor, how is he responding? And, oh, well, is the shark a big problem or, hey, you know, it can happen, but we're still going to go swimming and odds are we'll be okay. I had the same feels watching this movie, just seeing everybody react to what was happening. And I saw a lot of, I, I heard and felt a lot of the same beats like, well, I don't have kids. This doesn't affect me. Or we all need to be in this together. Well, everyone's not in it together, guys. I think that was like the city planners or the government was like, not everyone's going for the, hey, let's do this together. So how do we get people on board with this? And I mean, it was like, wow. So it kind of was in a way, a lot of it was like less about the killer and catching the killer and more just watching everybody in society react. And like you said, like that hit me like, holy buckets, 90 90 years old favorite i mean favorite movie for me is probably the one dennis mentioned at the very end when he just they bring him into that court and he just starts to unleash and try to explain or just try to unburden his soul on you know why he's been doing what he's doing but if i'm going to pick a different one i would go pick the scene where there's the kind of little old man and he's walking down the street and the little girl or the kid stops and asks what time it is and all of a sudden everybody starts crowding around like why are you talking to this kid what are you doing? What I couldn't get out of my head watching this movie was the idea that it's 90 years old. This was 1931. And I'm thinking it's 1931 and Germany. What is going on in the early 1930s and Germany? It's, I don't even want to say the calm before the storm. It's the like despair before the storm of the great depression and what the people of Germany were going through and all the unemployment and just all of the, the absolute, I mean, that's what I used to teach in my social studies class was just the absolute desperation that led to the rise of the Nazi party to replace the Reichstag. And, you know, watching this movie, I'm, I'm watching a scene where you have this community that I'm sure in any other time, these people wouldn't be jumping on each other at the first chance they get. But because of the despair and the paranoia and the just this creeping feeling that you can't you feel helpless to do anything about, you know, I think that kind of sums up what the people of Germany were feeling like during the Great Depression and during this late 20s, early 30s time. But just that scene to me as I'm watching it and everybody starting to gang up on this man just because he told the little kid what time it was. I just I could not separate that. I could not divorce it from what was going on in this period in history. And so that scene, even though it may not be a major scene in the movie, like that one hit me as I was watching it. 
and I, and I get, it's not exactly the same thing, but when I think of 12 Angry Men, 12, 12 Angry Men leaves you as a kid. I remember going, but wait, did he, did he get, is he guilty? Was he not guilty? Asking my dad is probably like an eight-year-old at the time or a 10-year-old because I, my dad just saw that movie over and over and over and over again. And I remember like being somewhat frustrated as a child that I wanted the answer. And then I realized as you grow older that it's the question that's more important than the answer. And in this, I think it's the same thing. And to me, the question is, what do you do with somebody who's mentally ill? Is it morally justified to kill them and execute them? Is it morally justified to put them in jail and take care of them and pay for them, you know, and keep them and try to keep them away from people? But what if he gets out, then he harms again? Are you now culpable because you allow, you know? So it, it opens that whole big discussion and, and thought process of what do you do with the sick in society that people are, are not well and are harming others? And do we become monsters? The answer to that question in Psycho is you put him away for 20 years and then when you let him out, he starts killing people again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Psycho 2, written by... It's um, the guy who did Fright Night, right? Exactly. Same guy who did Fright Night. Uh, Tom Holland. Yeah, that's right. Tom Holland. Tom Holland. That's yep. You guys seen Psycho 2? Yes. That's yeah. pretty good. It's, yeah. It's worth watching. Psycho 2 is pretty good. The worst thing about Psycho that I think when I get the bad taste is when it was um, the remake with... Um, the, com- the guy's a comedian. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I got a quick question. So, who who played Anne Hesh's sister who comes looking for her after him? Uh, is it Julianne Moore? That's what I was wondering. It, it is Julianne Moore, I think. It is. I think who played were. Clarice who, Starling? Who played Clarice Starling in the next? Thanks. Sorry. I yeah, no, I said, I, I just, just occurred to me. I'm just like, was she in like the sequel, the bad sequel to both of these? She was in the bad sequel to Psycho and she was in the bad sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Yep. Yep, there you go. Yep. All right. She participated in the eating of uh, his brains. Oh, yeah. But she was in uh, The Big Lebowski, so that she's and absolved of all things. And Boogie Nights, respect. And uh, Jurassic Park 2, which that's a stinker. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the takeaway is, if you want your movie to suck as a sequel, Julianne Moore's the way to go. There you yep. go. Yep. The sequel to the, you know, the Hannibal one with Julianne Moore in there. I remember watching it. I didn't think it. I wondered always, too, like, Obviously, the first one is such a classic that the other one is not going to be able to top that. If that other one was the first one, would we have felt as bad about it, you know, as people sound like they're feeling? Because I didn't think it was horrible. We turned it off in my house when he started feeding him his own brain. (laughs) That was the turnoff point for us. I've never actually really liked Ray Liotta as an actor all that much, so I really enjoyed enjoyed it. (laughs) I just couldn't handle Clarice going away with him. I just couldn't get over that part. Okay. So over to Psycho, we did touch a little bit. We don't need to talk about casting on for, on uh, M because we don't have anything on that, but we didn't talk about casting at all on Psycho. So we've got Anthony Perkins. Yep. We've got Janet Lee. Yep. Who, by the way, from 1984 to 2002, wrote four books, including two novels. So that's pretty impressive. We have Vera Miles. Yes. Who needed a movie to finish out her contract. And so this, she was supposed to do some other movie and got pregnant and couldn't do it. So Hitchcock said, all right, come do this movie for me. You have John Gavin, who played the part of Sam Loomis. You have Pat Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, is the one who's playing the other girl who works in the office. You didn't know that. Tell no. your face, you didn't know that. Yeah. I did not so know the that. other girl who works in the office with Janet Lee's character with Marion, that's Pat right. Hitchcock. That's Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. And then the detective is played by Martin Balsam, who is also in 12 Angry Men that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And, and I also want to point out as well, Marion's last name is Crane, which is also a bird. 
just like Chloe <laughs> Starling. Yes, it's true. Just, just like in the one scene of M, there might have been a bird sitting in a, a bush. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I tried to connect all three, but it was a bit of a stretch. Eight-year-olds, dude. Eight-year-olds. Eight <laughs> What's a pet or ass, Walter? <laughs> okay so first scene first scene in that movie you've got what was supposed to be a helicopter shot but it was too unsteady so they really just did it like panning across a photograph and then you go into the apartment where two people are obviously engaged in an affair nooner it's a nooner. It's a nooner. Is it the first nooner we ever get in uh, cinema history? I don't know. I was kind of surprised that that would like, I mean, I don't see every movie that came out in the 60s, but that surprised me a lot of that stuff that that was there in the 60s. See, I heard that Hitchcock, he fluffed up certain scenes so that the censors would kind of, they could scale those back. So that oh. they would leave the shower scene and, and the murder scene and stuff like that. Oh. So he went kind of full throttle with the bra and underwear. So the censors would go after him there. And they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. First, let's talk about first scene. Let's talk about first scene. Any thoughts first scene. on first scene? Well, I, I want to make a, an original comment about the the whole, you know, that they're enjoying each other's company in the middle of the day being in a movie in the 60s. It was my understanding that there would be train tunnels to let me know when those kind of scenes were going to <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I've I've seen Hitchcock before. I know how he handles this kind of stuff, and and I had no train tunnel, so I felt lost. We'll explain it to you to you when you're older, John. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. So the guy uh, John Gavin, the guy playing Sam Loomis, was an ultimate gentleman, and this was the very first scene that he and Janet Lee shot together, and. After about 10 or 20 takes, Alfred Hitchcock goes to Janet Lee and says, not really feeling a lot of passion here. Can you take this in hand? And she said, what? He goes, can you take this in hand? And she said, yes, I can. And she aroused the passion in her co-actor enough to make the scene a little more believable. Anything for the scene. Right. Okay. Any other thoughts about opening scene? Nothing. Well, after hearing that little tidbit, I've got about six or 700, but I mean, <laughs> like. Uh... Okay. So best scene, best scene, go. It's the shower scene. It's shower scene. hundred percent the shower scene. Definitely got the point across. I think it's a toss up between the um, Martin Balsam going down the stairs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's also just the reveal. I remember watching the reveal, what the, the reveal at the end where it's the, he comes in, spins or yeah. And it's, she she turns the the chair around, and it's the, the the mother and the chair, the skeleton, and then all of a sudden he comes at that door and he's got the wig already on. So, so I remember seeing that there was a show that did there was a note, and I know somebody had the one of you had the book that that history of horror book, and there was also a, a show that was on that aired on TV frequently. It was always kind of replayed, and they would go into like the great classic characters and horrors, and, and I can't remember what it was, but they would always show that scene. I think that I think maybe that the reveal is powerful. Yeah, it is. The problem with this movie is that it was made well before any of us were born, and so it's so popular. We all just kind of grew up knowing who Norman Bates really was and knowing that the shower scene was coming. And so that was kind of embedded in us. I would say to me, I think the most impactful, frightening scene is that scene when the detective reaches the top of the stairs and the camera angle yeah. is from above. And it's such a perfect use of music 
because you see her come out the door in silence, come out the door for just a split second before that music comes in with their and it made me jump out of my seat. The vertigo effect going down the stairs with the falling was just, yeah, yeah, it was just, yeah, just shocking upon shock. And he's got that slash on his face or whatever. Now, how old were you guys? How old was everybody when they saw this? That was high school, probably. I don't know if I watched it all the way through. I feel like I did watch it all the way through once, but I was not smart enough to like fully understand it or whatever. Um, so really the first first viewing for me was in the last couple of weeks. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. You, like my, my dad would get on a stretch of like watching movies on a theme or movies by a particular director. And I remember during high school, he was on a pretty good stretch of Hitchcock movies. So I all kind of at the same time, when I was probably about 15, 16, we watched Marnie, Psycho, North by Northwest. I had seen The Birds when I was a little kid, uh, but he always he loved Hitchcock, and we used to always watch uh, Hitchcock Presents. And But the movies, I didn't see until high school, but then it was like boom, 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 one right after the other of like all the Hitchcock classics. I, I can say that I, I did not know anything about this when I first saw it all the way through. Like, I, I mean, I, you know, you hear psycho, whatever, but in the shower scene, but I don't know who the killer was in the shower scene. I didn't know it was a guy. I didn't know what was going on, but I've seen the scene before, you know, and you kind of knew that was coming, but the actual reveal at the end of the movie, the whole thing, I got to experience that fresh for a first time, probably as about a 12 year old. So I keep thinking it was like, John, your uncle, I remember showed you a lot of things that were probably inappropriate at an earlier age with movies and just let me watch them. It was the, I was the youngest of five. So there's four older brothers. So by just the default case of, you know what, eh, it's just one kid. So what if he gets a little screwed up? I think that would have been the philosophy of their older brothers who want to see the movie. So I get to see a lot of these. Some they tried to send me to bed. I used to go and listen and like creep down the stairs and try to see what they're, because I want to be part of whatever they were watching. And then somebody would be like, oh, now I'm afraid to go back upstairs. But, but Psycho I saw in its entirety, probably at about the age of 11 or 12 for me it was like i got the full effect of that movie and i did not know it was him and i was totally like oh my god at the end and dennis for you the shower scene was doubly shocking because you'd never seen running water before <laughs> i thought you were <laughs> going to say he'd never <laughs> seen a naked woman before well, well yeah. <laughs> anyway but isn't that isn't that still true? <laughs> i know i saw this one i think like maybe when i was in junior high but you don't understand a lot of what you're seeing at that age right it, so it didn't have a lot of significance unlike d i have seen this movie many many times since then so maybe like late high school or college is like when i finally sat down and watched it top to bottom and was like okay oh wow oh that's really like oh that's weird that's crazy that's bizarre well for me as a as a kid too is like going through the, the the emotions of you know when you're younger like that you 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 know here's the detective and he's gonna save the day so that's why i think that stair scene had a big impact on me because it literally like you said comes out of nowhere the amount of time i'd have to go back and see because i haven't seen it this week or whatever before this but how quick it is that your hopes of him coming up coming up and he's he's gonna save the day he's the cop he's the, right. the police he's He's, he's got a weapon. He's going to, he's going to be able to save the day. This is where, where it's all going to be. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's just, boom, he's down. Like not even a fight. There's no fight. And it was like deflating to you of like, oh my God, that I actually thought at the end that that girl was going to get killed too. So when the guy comes and saves the day, you're like, oh my God, thank God I can go to bed, you know, without having to worry about this because somebody caught him, you know? Think about how the people who saw this movie in theaters for the first time, oh, oh. Janet Lee, they think she's the main character. Uh, yes. Yeah. 45 minutes in. What? What? She's dead. What the heck? 
So we we all had, you know, some sort of I've seen this clip experience, right? Even the previews for this movie before it came out, they didn't show any scenes from the movie. It was Alfred Hitchcock walking around the set and talking about, oh, you know, this is a great scene that happens here and here we have. But he refused to let anybody who wasn't involved in a particular scene know what was happening. He had a chair made up for the Mrs. Bates, you know, like everybody's got their own chair with their own name on it. There was a chair that said Mrs. Bates on there so that not even everybody who was on the crew knew what would happen. He, <laughs> when he got the rights to the story, he went and bought all of the books that he could buy so that people wouldn't know how the book ended. And at that time, what was going on is that people would just wander in at any moment in the movie. And so he was like, what are we going to do when somebody's thinking they're going to see Janet Lee and they walk in, in the middle of this movie and they're like, where is she? And it's going to spoil every, I mean, there's surprise after surprise after surprise in this movie, because you, you start by watching, it's like from dusk till dawn that you're talking about. You watch thinking you're going to see a Quentin Tarantino bank robbery movie, and all of a sudden there are vampires. You're watching a movie that you think is this girl who's decided to steal money and run away. Suddenly it turns into a murder movie, and then your interest in the character, right? You've, you're like, oh, well, she's dead, so now you're rooting for Norman Bates, right? That's how they do it. They have that nice conversation so that you're, you're like, well, I'm not rooting for her anymore. She's dead. I got to root for this guy because this poor guy's got to clean up after his psychopath mother upstairs. And so then it's a little bit later on that you go, oh yeah, like the detective is going to fix everything. He's going to solve it. Oh, nope. He's dead too. And then a little bit later on, you get them talking to the sheriff and he's like, his mother, his mother died 10 years ago. And you're like, what? How did that? And then there's another mystery, a brand new mystery, 79% into the movie that you go, what? How is she dead? Who is this other person? What's going on? And it's not until you get that reveal where you the chair turns is around. Really dead? Is she and, really dead? Yeah, yeah. And, she's not really dead because she's over here still. And then yeah. even and then he comes out dressed as her, which is shocking in and of itself. What? And a little bit funny. I just gotta say, Anthony Perkins in the dress is a little comical with his weird face. <laughs> and then and then you have that whole psychological explanation that happens at the end that you're just like, wow, he's not even him. He's her. He's been her the whole time. And then you get that great, that last moment, you know, she wouldn't even hurt a fly. And he's looking up at the camera and he's just, he goes from, he looked like, who, who was that? Andrew Garfield. Like when I saw this, I'm thinking, oh, this is a sweet looking, nice looking man. He looks like Andrew Garfield, right? He looks like a berry kid you'd let mow your yard or whatever, right? And he moves in that last little moment of the movie into the psycho. I caught this for the first time ever. There's just a hint of a dissolve on his face. At the yeah. It's like a skull that starts showing through. It's I yep. think it's yeah, mother. Yep. It's very fast. Yeah. If you blink, you're not gonna see it right right at the very end. And to me, that that, that ending is one of the things that stands out about this movie is is how unresolved everything really is. And you can kind of say it circles back to M. What do you do with this part of, of society? It almost takes me back to the end of Clockwork Orange. You know, if you guys haven't seen that, but, you, you know, you have Alexander DeLarge and camera zooms in. What's the last thing he says? They cured me. All right. And, you know, that's like that's absolutely not the thing that happened. I get that same sense 
watching Psycho. What status is he going forward? And then you get the, you know, eventually you get Psycho 2 and Psycho 3. Well, I think with all three of the movies that we're talking about tonight, that's just, that's the mark of a good horror movie is it's not going to resolve, it's not going to resolve the suspense or it's not going to resolve the terror for you. You, you, you're left, you know, each of these M left open-ended, you've got to figure out for yourself what, what path are they going to take? You know, this one, it leaves it with that fading out from his, you know, just his eyes staring straight ahead. And then silence of the lambs is okay. So you caught Buffalo bill, but look what you let loose <laughs> in the process of catching Buffalo bill. Was it worth it? Or did you unleash somebody who could be way worse? I know he says he's having an old friend for dinner, but you know, um, <laughs> at least somebody that could be way worse than Buffalo Bill because he's the creepy thing about him is he's smart and he's a, he seems a little bit more under control than Buffalo Bill was. So I think that's one of the things about each of these three movies that is just a, a sign of a good horror movie is it's not going to give you a clear resolution at the end. It's going to leave it open so that when you leave the theater, you're like, oh, well, the, the threat's not actually gone. One really quick connection, too, to another movie, and this is Wes Craven just paying tribute to this, is when we talked about early exits for, for people. I remember having the same sort of feeling when watch, watching Scream for the first time with Drew Barrymore. I'm like, Drew Barrymore's in this movie. She's going to be the star. And all of a sudden, well, then when you see her actually get killed, I'm like, wait a second. Like, what, what just happened? Like, five minutes into the movie and Drew Barrymore's dead. How is that possible? She's the big star. You know, because I don't think the other girl at the time was very, I mean, she might have been in TV shows, but Drew Barrymore was the bigger name to me. And all of a sudden she's gone. But I think Wes Craven was doing this almost as a, you don't know what's going to happen for the rest of this movie and who's going to get killed. You know that no one is safe. It's not like, you know, that like, you know, it's one of the things about Star Trek for me was, you know, who was going to get killed. <laughs> it's always going to be that other guy who comes down with him to the planet. Right. Right. You know, but it's not going to be one of the main characters. Kirk, Spock, Bones, and that other dude. Yeah. Do you, do you guys know like the story about what Hitchcock tried to do to keep people from getting spoiled on the surprise of the movie? Like, especially yeah. if you're going to kill your main character yeah. early on. He, he instituted a no entry policy in theaters after. So after the film started, he made sure that movie theaters were not allowing people into the movie. I've suggested that Psycho be seen from the beginning. In fact, this is more than a suggestion. It is required. And here is what Broadway saw. No one, but no one, will be admitted to the theater after the start of each performance of Psycho. The audience had been sold this concept. With it, they were sold on Psycho. Mr. Hitchcock tells you, as he told them, why. This, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. We really have only your enjoyment in mind. Yeah. Sorry, that was the start time. You missed it. Come to the next showing. Which which supposedly is the start of movie showtimes. Like before that, it was you just run your movie on a loop and people just buy a ticket, come in. You could stay as long as you wanted to. You, If you came in and you missed the first 30 minutes of the movie, well, well, I'll stay and watch the rest of the movie. And then I'll stay for the first 30 minutes and then I'll leave. So you might see stuff out of order just because the movies would keep running and running. And he's like, that doesn't work for me. I am demanding that you have start times for these showings and that you do not let people in after that start time has commenced. And I guess there was a lot of pushback from the theaters. But then when this was so popular, the theaters all of a sudden were like, 
hey, if we make people pay per showing as opposed to just buy a ticket and sit here all day if you want to, uh, we can actually make more money that way. So that was, I don't know if it's the first movie that ever did specific show times, but it's probably the most famous one. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that marketing campaign and it really paid off because they had people lined up around the block, but it was like, not the president of the United States, not the brother of the theater owner, not the queen of England. Nobody mm-hmm. gets in after the movie starts. I want to say that the soundtrack show, when they talked about Psycho, I think... Uh, David W. Collins told the story that there was someone that was like, yep, sorry, you're not getting in. <laughs> She's pregnant. You know? Yeah. Pregnant lady who they're trying to, the, the guy was like, my wife is just pregnant and that's why she's late. And the theater manager was like, I'm really sorry, but she can sit in my office until the next showing happens. And like you said, what resulted was people waited in line because you have, if you if you can't go in whenever you want to, you've got to wait for a specific time. So you got lines out of the theater to watch this movie, which made everyone else interested in what was going on. And then as they're waiting in line to go in, you've got people coming out of the theater like they've just been on a roller coaster ride who are laughing and crying and like that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen which just gave fuel to the fire right you know we we talked a little bit about the shower scene the blood in the water was not red that's my trivia question I'm sorry no no go ahead Go ahead. It was not red. Go ahead. Because it's black and white. So who knows? It's a black and white movie they used yeah who knows what they used chocolate sauce right yep Bosco's chocolate syrup yep which you can still buy by the way Uh, I just want to say Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. You were you were rolling, man. Something was coming I, right there. Well, I was just saying I would like to go back and have a throwback day at the theaters where you can go in. Sort of like when video game arcades, kids look them up, video game arcades, great <laughs> places of wonderment. But like when you could go into the video game arcade and you'd pay like five bucks and everything was free play for like five hours or something. Like I would love to have throwback day where you just go into the theater. Here's my five bucks. Yeah, just see any movie you want. Walk into this one, walk into that one. I, I'm telling you, man, that'd be sweet. And I'm just saying if they had that back in the day when the Matrix came out, like... I sank an entire year's worth of college tuition in one week into buying tickets to rewatch the matrix. So I'm just saying like, that could have, that could have like set me up. You know what I'm saying? Throwback day, five bucks, see whatever movie you want. You mean when you go to the movies, you actually only go to one movie. (laughs) (laughs) So this podcast is going out to the public, Jeff. And I'm just saying, (laughs) I'm not admitting anything. I was just clarifying. So I understand, you know, what it is that I can support you in your dream. That's all you can support asking a clarifying question. I see. Yes. Okay. Me too. Okay, good. (laughs) Okay. One more thing on the shower scene. So he sent it expecting them to say something about the nooner scene at the beginning. The censors said nothing about the nooner scene or almost nothing. And then for the shower scene, three of the five said, we see nudity. And the other two said, we don't see nudity. And this, they're like, well, what do we do? And they decided, okay, well, let's send it back to him and say, well, you need to take the nudity out. And so he took it out of the can and then he put it back into the can, shook it up a little bit, gave it back and the three that saw it before didn't see it, but now the two that didn't see it now saw it. And they said, they sent it back again, said, take the nudity out. He says, okay, did the same little shaky shake process, sends it back. And they're like, all right, thank you. I could just, I could just imagine like five dudes like sitting around just being like, all right, uh, uh, hang on, go back, go. Okay. All right. I was right there. Okay. One frame forward. That's it. That's it. Nope. Sorry. You're out. Then the other guys, are you sure? I don't think so. You're no, basically I, describing me and my friends in, in high school. Yeah, yeah I was uh, yeah. <laughs> These guys would have loved 
They would love Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> yeah. So because he knew Janet Lee would be uncomfortable both trying to act and being naked at the same time, he went to a local strip club and got one of the burlesque dancers who's used to being naked all of the time to come and be the body double for Janet Lee. I thought you were going to say he stripped down naked as well. well no, he's that would got make, cameos that'd make everyone uncomfortable. That would have been the worst cameo for him. <laughs> you know that he does like the cameos. That he's famous for the cameos. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Educate me, my man. I mean, yeah. So one of the fun things I remember as a kid was trying to find like in all of his films, because my dad would be like, he's going to be in every one, but for a second. And you'd be trying to look for him in all the film. And this one, he's in it in this first six minutes. He's outside uh, her office. He's got a cowboy hat. So that's him. In Birds, I remember, I think he walks out of the store. So he would have little cameos, kind of a little bit like, what's his name from uh, from the Mar- Sam Lee, you know, where he's somewhere in the movie. His He he always has lines, though, where, where he didn't usually have lines. He just was there somewhere walking past in the back, and it's always like, there he is, there's Alfred Hitchcock. Okay, so now moving on to Silence of the Lambs. First scene. Okay, so I will tell you this. I didn't... Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen Silence of the Lambs. When I saw it the first time, I, I guess I was probably put off or something. I didn't, you know, the tucking scene, I wasn't emotionally ready for at that moment. So I probably didn't like it as much when I first saw it. Um, but without saying that I like the tucking scene now, I'm <laughs> to keep on going here. The I did I noticed something at the beginning that I had not noticed before because I don't think I knew it before, but when I was in college, I got a book called The Five C's of Cinematography. And one of the first things that it talks about in that book is that the actor should never look directly in the camera unless you want the audience to be unsettled. And my gosh, it was like every character of any importance did it in the first 10 minutes of this movie especially, and the worst of them all was Dr. What's his name? The psychiatrist who was in charge of the- Chilton. Yeah, Dr. Chilton, thank you. He not only looked right in the camera, you could see the slimy, oozy- He was hitting on you. Yeah, it was gross. (laughs) Like he's not hitting on her, he's hitting on me. Obviously Chilton did it and her boss did it before that. He was looking right into the camera. And then of course, the next very important guy to see, Hannibal Lecter, is looking right through you. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. Yes, I'm a student. I'm here to learn from you. Maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified enough to do that. Mm-hmm. That is rather slippery of you, Agent Starling. Sit, please. Is um, Hannibal Lecter the only character where they do the extreme close-up of the eyes? Because there are a couple shots of, of Hannibal Lecter where you see just like from bridge of nose to just above eyebrow. Well, and you got Buffalo Bill at the end with the night vision goggles pretty tight, too. Yeah. yeah. When she's walking through the cell for the first time, you've got the guy who's saying that he could sniff her, smell her, and they're all in regular barred cells. But when she gets in in front of Hannibal, he's got the plexiglass thing up. The reason that they did that was because they couldn't figure out how to shoot the shots 
through the bars without covering up all of Anthony Hopkins' face. And so like their set designer was just at the bank one day and she's like, why don't I just use like the plexiglass that they use here at the bank as, you know, this is the feature. Then the sound guy was like, well, because we won't be able to hear what he says. And and she's like, well, we'll put holes in it because he's got to be able to breathe, right? And so that's the reason that they have the plexiglass. Now, fast forward, they take him out of that cell so that he can go talk to the senator and put him in a cell with bars. And that's the point that he's really getting into her mind, right? He's really getting in there and trying to control what she's thinking and feeling. And it's at that point, you got those bars, you have to do that extreme close up. Otherwise, the bars are in the way, but it works perfectly because as he's staring into her soul, he's also staring into your soul. Yeah, he is. So what did you, what did you guys think of first scenes? To me, the first real scene is when Starling and Lecter meet. That kind of gets the movie kicked off. You're dropped in the depths with these guys and you realize, man, these guys are the worst of the worst. And she's got to she's got to hang out with this guy to figure out what's going on. And the best scene for me is Lecter's ultimate escape from the courthouse and in Memphis. The, in the ambulance? In the amb- when I saw that in the movie theater, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Who was the what, he shot he got shot. He's on top of the elevator. No, that's not what. And then he when he pulls off that face, I was like, whoa, I, I'm blown away. Yeah, the the intercut that they did on that was fantastic. I think it is only topped by the intercut of the FBI storming a house and ringing a bell. That just happens to be coinciding exactly with when Starling is coming and ringing the bell of Buffalo Bill. That was a dirty dirty trick. It was a dirty trick and it was effective and I liked it a lot. Yeah. Well, to circle back, uh, D, what you were saying about how they did the the, using the plexiglass. I always thought that and maybe this was just a uh, bonus for the filmmakers, right? Here she is walking down this corridor with the worst of the worst of the worst, and they're all behind bars. And like, what could be worse that you need something other than bars to hold him back, right? Like, this guy is that bad that he gets plexiglass. He, they can't even risk having, having him behind bars. He needs a whole other type of containment. Even still watching now, every time they use that drawer that they to transport things in and out of his plexiglass cell, you know, the, the, the drawer shoots out and you know, that she needs to put something in or she needs to take something out. And you're just like, she's going to put her hand in there and he's going to pull that drawer back right away and just pop her hand right off at the wrist. That is, is incredibly effective. But in terms of a favorite scene for me, there are so many scenes that are so well done in this movie um you know jason i agree with you the 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 reveal and the ambulance you know and and all of a sudden you you start putting the pieces together in your brain for me it's almost faster than my brain can process all of it i get what's going on but i don't understand what's going on and then like i need a minute to think about and realize how evil he is how incredibly brilliant he is how much he doesn't give you know a flying rip about buffalo bill from minute one he recognizes this is this is his opportunity to escape that's you know that's his whole end game it doesn't buffalo bill or anybody else that doesn't matter he's smart enough to know i play the game and i'm out of here yeah um you know and and even the way it wraps up with clarice on the phone dr lector dr lector dr lector (laughs) dr lector 
And then you just watch him literally fade away, disappear under this crowd of people. And you're just like, what in God's name? How, what, where, when, who? Like, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But there's so many of those in this movie that just, it's like a gut punch. And just like, oh, didn't see that coming. Or holy smokes, I was just like high tension, high anxiety, right? Like top to bottom, so good. All that I could think of when you were repeating what Clarice, when she's saying Dr. Lecter on the phone at the end, all I could think of was back and to the lector, back and to the lector, back, back and to the lector, back and to the lector. <laughs> that's the same accent is basically the same accent too for me i think one of the I, i've got a couple of different thoughts on like favorite scenes i love the tension of the scene towards the end when he's got the night vision goggles on just yeah. i mean just you're, you're watching this and i wish there's been a few movies i've been able to see when they've like put him back in the theater again i would love to go see this movie in a movie theater and just be in a theater with other people huge screen dark theater and I, I just want to hear people holding their breath during that entire sequence with the night vision when he's just, he's reaching forward and it's just, he's just barely about to touch her face and he pulls away or she moves and, and he doesn't quite touch her, but he's just so close and it's just so creepy and so tense that I, that is one of my favorite scenes of the movie. The other option I have for favorite scenes is any time that Anthony Hopkins opens his mouth. Like yeah. any time he says anything in this movie, I could I just sit there. I know he's a serial killer. I know he eats people, but it, it just I want to listen to him talk and just I love the way that he just twists everything. One of my favorites in particular, just just and the way the other people react to him too is the scene where they've got him in the uh, airplane hangar and they're trying to get the information out of him and he starts with that whole thing tell me senator did you nurse Catherine yourself did you breastfeed her and he's like going into all this stuff and she's like what are you even talking about and he's like amputate a man's leg and he can still feel it tickling tell me mom when your little girl is on the slab where will it tickle you and then it just and then they start to put him away and and then he just unleashes and he's like all right well this is how tall he is and this is how much he weighs and it and then at the end i love the final comment at the end he's like and if uh, but if i think of any more i'll let you know oh and senator just one more thing love your suit yeah <laughs> i'm just like huh I, like i even just got chills just now thinking about it i'm like it's just so weird and twisted and just so creepy and he does such a good job of delivering every single line in the movie that interaction between he and the senator that's not the same love same connection that he has with clarice no. which is why when he's when he's like that with the senator it's completely unnerving yeah you think you under as much as you can possibly understand a serial killer you think you understand him after he's had a couple of visits with clarice and then all of a sudden you, you really see the depths of his strangeness hmm. when he's with the senator and you're just like oh God, as, as much as you think a reptile could care for someone, he seems to have at least a little bit of maybe not care, but a consideration for Clarice because he gets upset when, you know, when Miggs, you know, does what he does uh, and he gets upset because it's rude. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if it's a case of like him actually caring for or considering Clarice, but he just he doesn't like the rudeness of what just happened. But when you get to that, you're right. It's like there's a complete disdain, like these creatures in front of me are not even human. Like I am so I'm on a completely different plane 
plane of existence, I, I have no respect, no consideration to give for any of these meat sacks. But he's so he's so poised and so intelligent, and there's so little violence throughout the whole movie that the one scene, the one scene where he unlocks his cuffs and he attacks the two oh, police yeah. officers is shocking. I mean, you're just all of a sudden you're just like, oh, he just whipped that guy with his own nightstick and blood is just and he's still just i mean almost expressionless as he's doing it but it's just so ultra violent so bad and then bites biting the face of the other guy you you see the horror and they had to have that kind of gore which you don't typically care for in movies but it's just it's like aliens it's like we talked about you know you've you've got almost the entire movie of no blood but that one scene when it happens boy is it impactful you stole you covered exactly what i was going to say is like one of my favorite scenes is with the two because as people were talking about when when she was going through and you saw all the people behind the bars and everything else i remember like some of you guys are saying like you, when he got to here like i think it was jeff saying like oh boy how evil is it be that he's behind plexiglass and maybe that's the initial thing but somehow i felt like she was safer getting through the the bars and all those guys those creepy weird guys who were just shouting stuff at her and you got to this guy who's talking intelligent who's calm who's intelligent and you're just thinking he's sort of like her friend in a way but he's not you know he's got some evil stuff behind him but he they lull you into this cerebral sort of it's a psychological sort of intelligence that he has that just is like puts you almost at a little bit disarming like he's not an animal and when he comes out at the end and he does attack those two officers it goes from being a cerebral villain to like a physical animal like he is an animal at that point utterly evil and you see what you didn't see almost that you you almost had a sense of like oh he's helping her out he, and i thought he liked her all the time like he like he like in, and not in a maybe genuine way i'm not sure if john you were trying to say that but like like if he cared about her really but or more as like here's a chess apprentice that you know i'm playing this kind of psychological sparring with and no one else messes with her because she's kind of mine and, and i'm protecting her and to a certain degree i felt like he kind of did care about her but then it was like when you see the animal part come out in that scene that is like it is ultimately that transition that everything else sets up it's intelligent he's smart he's calm you know there's parts where she almost gets him to lose his cool but he, the animal never comes out and right there the animal is unleashed and literally like with almost like just bloody teeth is just you now have a full-fledged animal and you realize what he's capable of when he when he like transforms kind of like in m night Shyamalan's with the guy who's like you know playing the cycle uh what's the one um what? the bunch of characters yeah split you know when that monster comes out it's like now there's this evil thing versus the you know the regular characters that were there and you see that transition happen in that scene very quickly and you are you're shocked by it yeah. well and it's, it's underscored by whatever that music is playing on the cassette too right yeah. that it's that classical yeah. piece which just yeah it is it, it's just another level of unnerving yeah because that's not the music that you would associate with that type of attack you know it's like to go back to clockwork orange when uh you know when when <laughs> alexander and and his the rain yeah his buddies are doing singing singing in the rain while they're what isn't yeah. that the rape scene yep yeah yep. like it's you're just like i can't I, I i don't want to process this i don't want to connect these two things yeah. but this movie is forcing me to do that another it's more of a shot but it's i guess the whole scene with the lotion but it, to me it's the shot of the fingernail in the wall it's always been in the wall has been unsettling to me because then you just like there's a certain dread that i remember when i first saw that when they, they kind of they zoom in on it you see that fingernail and it makes you think of everything that's happened to that point in there 
there's nothing like a fingernail, bloody fingernail in a wall. And you just, without having seen it, like you said, they don't show everything. But the amount of horrific violence and desperation of somebody in that pit, you know, literally trying to claw their way out of something to the point that their fingernails are on the wall and blood. Would that be kind of a Hitchcockian move? I'm going to plant the seeds and let your brain do the rest. Do the rest really, of the work. Yeah. And I really think all smart, I think, and that's where I think we go back to when we first start talking about slasher films and what do we like? I think you like the intelligent thing. You don't show the bloody, you know, I used to try to tell this to kids when I was doing my film class was they would always try to do a trailer or something that was scary and they didn't want to show. Can we do knives? Can we? I'm like, it's it's not, it's a psycho killer coming and stabbing a bunch of people and seeing everything is not always the most scary thing. It's always the setup. It's the unknown. It's what you don't see. It's that, because we've all been there before. I've never been in a situation, God forbid, luckily, that some psycho's coming at me with a knife and trying to stab me. But I'll we've be all there been in 35 a, minutes. We've all been in a place where... We've heard a creak at night. Fritz Lang did that in M. You don't see yeah. any of the violence in M. No. You know? yeah. So instead of saying it's Hitchcockian, it's what? It's Langian? Maybe. Maybe there you go. Fritz Lang's quote was when he was talking about no acts of violence or deaths being on screen. He says he forced each individual member of the audience to create the gruesome details of the murder yeah. according to their own imaginations. Yep. And that's the most effective way to do it. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. That's why, and again, you see how all these people, all these geniuses learn from each other and stuff too, because they're incorporating a lot of the same things. And going back to, again, Rod Serling, who's one of my favorite, you know, teleplay screenplay writers was when I, when I show it in class and I think Pat, you probably maybe walked in, John, maybe you walked in at times when I would show my sixth graders, the eye of the beholder with the mask and the bandages around the face, and they're talking when they start to unwrap and they're going around, it was a fishbowl with a camera, you know, and they're mm-hmm. showing the light coming. I have kids literally like covering their eyes, freaking out, asking if they could leave the room. Literally like the anxiety and tension is like unbelievable that when the reveal is there and it's um, what's your name from the Beverly Hillbillies. And they're like, what? I don't what? You know, but they created the language in there helps you create. And then your mind, you're creating this, this horrific monster face that's going to be there. And, the, and it's worse than what actually any director almost could do because they're letting you, you know, like like w- what they could show you is that you've created the monster in your head, just like he's saying. You've created all that, and your imagination is going to be 10 times worse than probably anything they could do with a special effect. That's one of the things I really like about Silence of the Lambs is that the first time I saw Silence of the Lambs, I already knew a few like facts or details about that movie. I was like, oh, yeah, it's the Hannibal Lecter, the guy's a cannibal. And, it, and then I watched the movie, and I was like, wait a minute. So he's not the, well, he is the villain, but he's not the one they're trying to stop. All right. Well, that's, that's weird. Uh, that seems like you, you'd think that would be your villain. Like he's the one that should be committing the crime that they're trying to track down. They're trying to stop. And I think that's one of the best things about that movie is you are left until you get to that scene where he, you know, starts eating the guy's face and, and breaks out of his, uh, handcuffs and everything else. You are just left to imagine what could be so bad that this guy is in this type of cell and he's they're this careful around him and it's just it's left up to your imagination is what in the world could Hannibal the cannibal lector have done to be considered this dangerous? Okay. I got a couple of tidbits for you real quick. The guy in the airplane hangar who, when he asked her if she breastfed Catherine, the guy who gets upset, that character's name is Paul Krendler. He actually shows up in the sequel. Uh, he's the guy who gets his brain eaten. Hmm. That is the, uh, that's Jack Crawford's replacement. So when I learned that, I was like, whoa, that guy gets his brain eaten. And then the book, in the book, 
Hannibal Lecter went after women. He was a woman killer. Now in the movie, all he does is kill men, but that's why they chose Starling because she kind of fit the profile of the, of the women he normally would go after. And so they, they were using her clearly as bait. Ready to move on to composers. I don't know who the composer for M was. They used soundtrack effectively in this, and I know it's gotten remade and reused several times. But moving on to Psycho, you've got Bernard Herrmann, who's huge, right? And he gave us the... His... When they, when the writer asked him, you know, how big of an orchestra are you going to use for the soundtrack? He said, it's going to only be the strings. He's like, only the strings? Why? He's like, well... It's a black and white movie. I'm creating a black and white sound. It's strings or nothing. And so that's all of the sounds that you get for Psycho. Even the stabbing scenes are all just stringed instruments. To piggyback off of that, think of the movement of the the bows on the violins and the violas, right? That back and forth movement of a stabbing motion when you watch those bows go up and down on the instrument. So you hear the instrument, you picture the instrument, you picture that movement, but you don't sit there and make those connections logically, but it all works together to help develop that motion, that stabbing motion in your head. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock said, Bernard Herrmann is responsible for one third of the success of this movie because it would not have been the movie it was without this amazing soundtrack. Kind of similar to what Steven Spielberg said about uh, John Williams and Jaws. Who was an apprentice of Bernard Herrmann and used his music to influence the music of Jaws, which was the first movie that he and Spielberg did together. And when Spielberg tried to meet Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock would not even bother to shake his hand. And then I think, um, you know, we, we already gave a little bit of a plug earlier to the soundtrack show, but in the soundtrack show, I think they mentioned that there's that motif in Psycho. You know, you're talking about John Williams. There's that motif in Psycho when he's trying to cover up the murder and it's kind of, the, I'm going to mess it up if I try it, but it's like, the dun, dun, dun. it's like a quick little like three note thing is the same musical motif when Obi-Wan, Luke, Han, and Chewie first emerge from the hidden compartments in the Falcon, the exact little, exact same little piece of music. Nice. And then for Silence of the Lambs, we have Mr. Howard Shore, who's done an amazing amount of stuff. He did The Fly, Jeff Goldblum, my guy for Hannibal Lecter. He did Singwat Female, Jennifer Jason Lee, my mm. replacement. I'm just pointing out the nice. obvious connections, right? Yes. Um, and he also did eh, all of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He's not, a, it's not a small amount of movies that wow. he's done. And not in yeah, Those are okay. Those if are you like that sort of thing. <laughs> it's all Dungeons and Dragons. But it's his his music in this one does not jump out at you. In this movie, it's very just kind of ambient. It's like it's just there and it's just creating it's a creepy. feeling, but it's not ring, 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 in your face. It's just there and supporting the moment of the film. That's really it. Thoughts? I will, I will say the soundtrack when they play American Girl by Tom Petty. Every time I hear that song on the radio, I'm like looking around for Buffalo Bill, you know? <laughs> That's the one she's singing before she gets kidnapped, right? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay. You ready for release and reception? And- yes. Okay. Let's do it. Okay.
Go. Well, M made about 35 grand in the United States, but has been determined by the German Cinematography Institute to be the single most important German film of all time. So I'd say that's pretty high recognition. Yeah. It was banned in Germany for... Yeah, the Ger- the Nazis banned it for 30 years. It, it, it was released 31. They banned it, I believe, a year after he left in 34, and it did not come back until 66. In the meantime, over in the US, it was here, came out in the US in 33. And apparently they remade it, like they remade an American version of M in 1951. At that time, you could still go see the original M and the original M actually outperformed the remake that they did. I know that the head of MGM gathered all his young directors showed it for them and said, you need to be making movies like this. Yeah. And so. then he said, if you brought me a movie that had this subject matter, I would reject it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Psycho made money. Yes, it did. It's a big hit. Okay. I've got that the budget, you know, 806,000 gross 32 million. And of course the highest grossing <laughs> movie of Alfred Hitchcock's career. And he owned what? 60% of the profits. Uh-huh. Woo. It's not a bad take. I don't know how he ran out of money. How by did the time he run out of money? Universal Theaters popped up. Well played, Hitch. Well played. Okay. Silence of the Lambs. Moving on. Hit me. Silence of the Lambs. It's one of three movies to win the big five at the Oscars. Best director, best actor, best picture, best actress, best screenplay. Only two other movies have ever done that. Anybody get any guesses? The I want to say Dan- Dances with Wolves might be one of them. Dances with Wolves is not the answer, but that is the reason why Silence of the Lambs pushed its release date back almost six months or something like that. It was supposed to come out in 1990. It was released February of 91, which is not typically when you release a movie that it's not typically when a movie is going to do well at the Oscars. It's usually the ones that are released at the end of the year that are going to do well at the Oscars. This one is at the beginning and it still does well. I'm going to guess big. No, not big. Okay. Gladiator? Nope. I would have said Titanic, but I don't think that one actress or actor. You want the year? You want? Yeah, give me the year. 1934 and 1975. Uh, 75 would be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. 34, The Man Who Knew Too Much? Nope. Is it one of those when you say it where we're going to be like, oh, man, or is it going to be like, huh? Yeah. It doesn't mean a lot to me. It's called uh, It Happened One Night. Hmm. Huh? I know the okay. title of that movie, but I don't think I've seen it. Is that? Yeah, a- I've, I've heard of it. You're muted, Dennis. That's how we like it. <laughs> All right. And I was saying it would happen one night and I was muted. That's not fair. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the reason is I was saying we actually saw that film junior year in a film study class. Oh, nice. I didn't think it was that great, but I remember it being a big thing. So when you narrowed it down to the year 1934, that's all I could think of. I remember we 1934 kind of, was your that was your junior year. That, that, was, that was his junior. That year. was that was junior year of college, though, right? In all fairness, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're all running a mile tomorrow. Let's see who wins. Anyway, so now is the time on sprockets when we rank our movies. Oh boy, here we go. Okay, I'll keep it short and sweet. I loved M when I saw it for the first time this year. I thought it was fantastic. I was truly, truly impressed. I had not liked Silence of the Lambs before, so I thought it was going to be third. And I thought Psycho is so iconic. Once I rewatch this thing again, I'm going to think this is the best of them all. Uh, I was completely wrong on my prejudgment of everything, right? 
So Psycho didn't do much for me. I honestly kind of nodded off a couple of times during Psycho. It just wasn't, it didn't, it didn't give me the thrill that I thought it was going to give me. M is fantastic. And for the things that it set into play, I got to rank it at number one, but Silence of the Lambs is a close second. I was truly surprised at how good it was because I had not remembered it being so good. Silence of the Lambs is fantastic, but M laying the groundwork for everything that it did. The fact that it's 90 years old and it was, seems so enlightened and the performance of Peter Laurie as he's describing what it's like to be tormented and how to relieve that. It's just it's too good. I got to go M number one, Silence Lambs number two and Psycho, a kind of distant three. Okay. What do you guys got? Final judgment. I would like to just like, at first I'm like, after watching all three of these movies, and I'd never seen them all up until 36 hours ago, my first reaction was like, dude, I'm just going to reject the question. But then I realized, okay, well, if we have guests on our show, that's not really, you know, that's not cool. And if this is kind of, we're guests on your show, I don't want to show up and be that guy. <laughs> so then actually hearing what D had to say, that's exactly kind of the ranking that I would feel in it. Like M was just awesome. And I feel like I could rewatch that in fact, I'm going to rewatch it just because I'm, I'm sure I missed a whole bunch of it, but I'm going to rewatch that thing. Um, and I, I could see rewatching that every year, you know? I mean, that's like Dennis said, I mean, that's like a 12 Angry Men-esque kind of mind play, you know? The other two movies were fantastic. I don't know. I don't know if I'll rewatch them. I might go the a little bit uh, opposite of what Dee was saying. I might rewatch Psycho before I rewatch Silence of the Lambs. But then as I say that out loud, it's like, no, nah, I could see Silence of the Lambs again. I, I really, I liked them all, but M was just so much to think about and so relevant. I would I would give that one the nod. So I'm going to go by more of what I would rewatch again. So I'm going to go the almost opposite. I'm going to go Silence of the Lambs 1, Psycho 2, M3 because of that factor. If I were to judge which movie I'm going to see again, it's on TV, I'm going to stop and watch. Probably Silence of the Lambs, then it's going to be Psycho, and then it would be M. M is good, but like if I were to rank which one is, especially for the time period and for what they had to work with, you know, and, 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 and a bold statement and a bold topic at that time, a daring topic, so while I might rank M under the scale of which is the better film, which one I would rewatch more or which one I would be wanting to see again, I would go Silence, Psycho, M. I'm struggling with this a lot because the the difference between all three of these would be like minuscule points. Like they, they each bring a certain thing to it, right? So I feel like without M, they're probably Psycho wouldn't have done its thing. And without Psycho, Silence wouldn't have done its thing. Right. But in my head, that doesn't warrant um, enough credence to beat out Psycho and Silence. I think in terms of if I'm if I'm going to put on a movie and I want to be entertained by a movie of this genre, I think I would probably go with Dennis's list and do Silence. Very close second would be Psycho. And then very close to that would be M. It just depends on what do I want to get out of my movie viewing experience when I'm putting on this movie? <clears throat> Sometimes on our show, we kind of, we try to ask the question and, and frame it like, all right, a two-parter. If this were coming out today and we're in theaters, like what would draw me to go see it? Part two to that question is, is this a movie that I would own a physical copy of? My list is pretty much exactly the same. It actually is exactly the same as everybody else's for some of those same reasons. I really enjoyed M. It's the first time I had seen it from start to finish. A, a heady topic. Just it was it was great to see and watch a movie that was that long ago, and just some of the strategies, some of the different techniques, and the things that it employed. I'm watching that movie. I'm going. 
that's where that's from. I've seen that in other movies before, but this one is so early on. I'm like, that must be where it started or, or very close to where it started. So that was fun to see that in M to Jeff's point. I don't know that at least in the near future, I will go back and rewatch M it's one of those. It's like, okay, I've seen it. I I've checked that off my list of movies I need to see before I die. Do I need to see it again? Nope. I've got it. I understand its significance. I enjoyed it. I really liked it. Moving on to other things. Psycho. Love Psycho. I I would probably own a copy of Psycho. I don't own a copy, but I would. If not for just its cultural significance, knowing that my family growing up, Alfred Hitchcock was always kind of a big thing in our family. We watched a lot of Alfred Hitchcock stuff. Psycho, would I be as ready to rewatch Psycho as I would um, Silence of the Lambs? Or would I be... I don't even want to say as entertained. Well, no, I do as entertained. No, I am more entertained, but just barely more entertained by silence of the lambs. There's just so much in silence of the lambs that just kind of hits it for me. Just that the character of Hannibal Lecter, the, the, the struggle, the story, all the conflict in it, the interplay between Clarice and, and Hannibal. It just, it that movie fires on all cylinders for me. So I think, that's going to be my order too. It's going to be Silence of the Lambs, Psycho, and then M. That doesn't diminish what M is and what M did. It's just they're all three really good. Yeah, I'm going to just copy what you guys said. I think for my list, it goes M at number three, Psycho at number two, and then the character of Hannibal Lecter as the crazy psychotic who's helping you catch the super scary Buffalo Bill that puts it over the top. Silence of the Lambs for me is number one. We want to hear what you guys out there in Facebook land have to say about this. Where do you rank these? One, two, three. Facebook land? Facebook land. <laughs> guys, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. Just a lot of fun to get in depth with these crazy deep serial killer movies. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much for having us. We always have a good time with you guys. Most of us, except for Pat, anytime we get a chance to talk about something creepy or scary, we're, we're up for it. And, and Pat's a good sport. You know, he'll jump in too. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know how creepy and scary these were. I think it was just really like intense, you know? So I don't know what that statement was supposed to mean. You can edit that out, but Hey, <laughs> it was great being on the show though. And seriously talking about three movies that I'd never seen before. So it was great to get the first time reactions and discuss them. So, yeah, you know, the Pat rating for these should be a one blankie, two blankie, three blankie type of rating for you. Yeah, man. Yeah, I, lambs, you needed three comfort blankies there. And <laughs> uh, not once I started rooting for Hannibal Lecter. Like once I realized, like, dude, this guy's smarter than any of these fools out there. And I was rooting for Jody Foster too. So then it kind of became like, you know, he's getting out. Like and Jody was running too. So <laughs> well, that probably didn't hurt. But that yeah, Pat, you kind of hit on my sister's strategy when she's watching a movie and it starts to get too scary. She decides she's gonna start rooting for the villain. Right. Then it becomes less scary. So that's kind of her strategy for any horror movie. If she's getting freaked out or too scared, she's like, all right, I'm just going to start rooting for the guy or the creature that's killing everybody. And then it's less scary. Right. Well, guys, thank you for uh, for having us on. And, yeah. and I, I also want to thank you specifically for this episode, you know, taking our, our concept, looking at um, Silence of the Lambs and then raising it with your concept because you guys always find fantastic ways to hit one thing against another thank you and in, in, in ways that always make sense that when you hear it it seems so obvious but you never think of it yourself until all of a sudden you're like you guys are like 
So next week, we're going to start comparing this one and that one. Like, oh, how come I've never done that before? That makes, <laughs> of course, you should compare those things. Well, so bring, bringing M and Psycho into the conversation oh, for really? Sons of the Lambs was, was like, yeah, I never would have thought. I, I never great would have conversation. Put together. Yeah. Well, thank you for setting us up for promoing what we're coming out with next episode, which is two movies that turn 40 years old this year. Both werewolf movies, both 1981, 1981, amazing werewolf change movies, (laughs) got The Howling by Joe Dante and American Werewolf. Oh, oh, man, those are good ones. (laughs) It's been super fun, guys. Look forward to doing it again soon. Yeah, you guys all take care. Thank you all so much. Talk to you later, guys. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break to do a Shirley showcase with one of our Patreon members, Mr. Jonathan Tweedy. He's going to hit us with his opinion on one of our episodes from season one, which is Trading Places versus Coming to America. Yep, let's hear from Jonathan. Hey, guys, this is John Tweedy from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I appreciate you inviting me to chime in on some of the films you've pitted against each other in the past. I've been listening to you since last fall, and I think it's an absolutely awesome show. I love the depth and complexity of the connections that you make between the films you review and how you weave together this tapestry of relationships to other films and actors and just pop culture in general along the way. Most of all, I think I enjoy the nostalgia. I'm guessing we're around the same age since a lot of what you talk about is a blast from the past from my own childhood as well. Anyway, since my first experience listening to your podcast was when you discussed trading places and coming to America, I thought I'd say a little bit about those two. First of all, I absolutely loved both movies. It's almost impossible for me to say which I think is best. I do think each of them did something different for me. I found the plot of Trading Places to be more captivating, but I found Coming to America to be a much funnier film throughout. I also really found Trading Places to be more of a film about Louis Winthorpe than about Billy Ray Valentine. We do see a good bit of his experience independent of Winthorpe when he's working for the Duke brothers, but when they join forces to bring him down, I feel like the story takes a strong lean towards fulfilling Louis's agenda with Billy Ray along for the ride. It's really in Coming to America that we really get the chance to see Eddie's comedy really come to life on the big screen. And, you know, with two Beverly Hills cops coming out in the meantime, it's it's by no means our first introduction to him as the main character. But in both those and Trading Places, it feels like the comedy kind of takes a backseat to the larger plot, only really showing up when he's being silly or funny to distract somebody. In other words, Trading Places is a comedy drama using drama loosely here, you know, with some silly parts. And Beverly Hills Cop is an action with some silly parts. But I found Coming to America to be a side-splittingly hilarious comedy that was then loosely structured around a romantic plotline to hold it together. And I think that's what really made the difference for me. Both obviously have terrific casts. Don Amici and Bill Bellamy absolutely slay it as the Duke brothers. Uh, Paul Gleason does what he does best by playing a kind of a wet blanket of a nasty guy. And Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, gives us what I thought might be some of her sexy, strong, and beautiful best as Ophelia. But then again, coming to America's use of Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall to play what seems like 27 characters apiece, along with the amazing talents of James Earl Jones, John Amos, Sherry Headley, Louie Anderson, and, yep, Samuel Mother-something Jackson, back when he had both eyes. That pretty much knocks the casting out of the park, too. So, like I said, I don't think I could ever pick a favorite of the two. 
I love them both for their own reasons. So what it really comes down to is that I think Coming to America is the better comedy and Trading Places has a more intriguing plot. Anyway, thanks so much for what you do, guys. It's been a joy listening so far and I plan to keep following along. Okay, I totally understand. We pick these to make the decision hard. We want, I mean, if it was an easy decision, it wouldn't be interesting, right? Right, right. We only pick winners. We only pick winners and the winners are ones that it's tough to decide which one you like. I still go back and like, did I pick the right one? I don't know if I picked the right one. I lean trading places, but I love coming to America too. Coming to America is by far a funnier movie, but trading places is so iconic. I don't know. It's a tough one. I'd watch them both right now. Eddie Murphy is so great. It doesn't really matter. But thank you, Jonathan. Really appreciate your support. You've been a, a great advocate for us and really appreciate you giving us support. If you would like to, dear listener, would like to become a Patreon member, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Shirley podcast. And for as little as $5 a month, which is the Billy Ray Valentine level, <laughs> you can be one of our executive producers. Uh, we also go up to Lewis Winthorpe, Duke Brothers, and then Prince Akeem. I know, right? Right. Jonathan, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Thanks for weighing in. If you want to be on the Shirley Showcase, send us an email. Keep it around three minutes or less and email us at shirleypodcast at gmail.com. And we've got a nice connection in the movies you just mentioned for next week's episodes. We have John Landis once again, the movie he did before he did Trading Places, right before he That's did Trading right. Places. American Werewolf in London, which came out in 1981, and we're going to compare that to another great werewolf movie from 1981, The Howling. It's Halloween time. we got to do something scary, you know? It is the year of the wolf. Beware of the moon. <laughs> stick to the moors. No, stick to the road. Stick to the road, not the moors. Stay away from the moors. Oh, we're going to be so lost. <laughs> ah!